Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash church leaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash church leaders and join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And in this series, we are exploring the church's stance on LGBTQ issues. This has been a pressing conversation for some time, and we believe it is only growing more important that believers and church leaders engage in this conversation with both love and wisdom. There are many questions that Christians are wrestling with, including what does it mean to love someone in the LGBTQ community while not compromising what the Bible says? Can someone be both gay and Christian? Should we use someone's preferred pronouns? And how can pastors best address these topics with care from the pulpit? We'll explore questions like these from multiple angles, theological, academic, cultural, and social. We'll also hear from the local pastor's perspective. Our guests are more than experts. For some of them, this conversation is extremely personal. We hope that this series will be informative and will help you navigate this challenging area of life and ministry with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And now, let me introduce you to this week's guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. This is such a great conversation. I got to sit down with Preston Sprinkle this week. A biblical scholar and international speaker, Preston serves as the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. He's a New York Times bestselling author who's written numerous books, including People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue, and his latest, entitled Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. Preston has given talks to thousands of people worldwide on the topic of faith, sexuality, and gender. And on this episode, Preston and I discuss transgender identities and why this conversation is so important for the church. Preston shares some of the major topics related to trans identities, such as cross-sex behavior, gender stereotypes, intersex conditions, and gender affirmation, and he highlights how scripture relates to them all. We also offer some great next steps for pastors and ministry leaders, so be sure to listen for those. Such helpful insights. So now won't you please join me in my conversation with Preston Sprinkle. Preston, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for making the time to be with us today. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you've recently written a book called Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. And many assume, probably many of those listening in right now, um, make assumptions um, about being trans, that's that's one thing or maybe maybe something else. But what does it really mean to be trans? That That's a... I mean, that has to be the leading question before we get into trans identities. And unfortunately, if you ask 10 different people, uh, what does it mean to be trans? You might get 12 different responses. If you ask 10 different trans people what that means, you might get 
14 different responses. <laughs> um, there is a wide diversity of understandings and assumptions that go into the trans identity. Uh, let me give you, I guess, just two of many examples. Um, I have uh, one friend who is a very solid believer in Jesus, came to faith three years ago. Uh, she is biologically female and identifies as a female, uh, but experiences what psychologists call gender dysphoria. And so she lives with this almost inexplicable incongruence between her internal sense of who she like feels like she is and who, who her body tells her she is. And as a Christian, she um, says, well, no, I'm, I'm female and, and that's who I am, even if I don't resonate with that. But she will describe herself as trans as almost a synonym for her gender dysphoria, because this is a significant part of her life that she goes through every day, sometimes every hour of every day with this severe um, incongruence that she wrestles with, wrestles with. I've got another friend who is uh, a male in his uh, late 40s and uh, believes that he is a female. Like if you say, you know, he doesn't say I want to be a woman or I wish I were a woman. He says, I am a woman. And so for him, this internal sense of who he is trumps his body in a sense, his biological sex. And so when he says he's trans, he would understand himself to be some, I don't know if he would necessarily say like born in the wrong body, but that's, that's, that would be kind of more along the lines of what, uh, he, how he would view himself. Now, those are two very, very different meanings of trans. Um, there's a whole movement within the trans community, especially among younger people who would say, you don't even need to have gender dysphoria to be trans. Um, you, if you just say you're trans, you're trans and whatever that means to you, that's what it means. And so, that is uh, that is a complication when you engage this conversation. You know, as one um, psychologist says, Mark Yarhouse likes to say, you know, if you've met one trans person, you've met just one trans person. Like we cannot assume some kind of one size fits all understanding of what it means to be trans. Yeah, so that's uh, that's that's helpful, but but maybe not as helpful as, as we'd like it to be, right? <laughs> um, so Preston, talk to us a little bit about um, the difference between sex and gender, because sometimes yeah. uh, people just kind of make assumptions about that as well. Yeah, so sex and gender, up until the 70s, sex and gender were seen as synonyms. Um, just that if you're male or female, that's your sex, that's your gender, and people would use those terms interchangeably. From the 70s into the 80s, especially um, some academics um, would make a distinction between sex and gender, sex being your biological sex, whether you factually are male or female, and gender being kind of the psychological or social aspects of what it means to be male or female. Um, so even concepts like masculinity is not exactly the same as male. Male is a biological reality. Masculinity, masculinity comes with a lot of kind of assumptions and expectations about how men or should act or, you know, femininity for how women should act. Um, so gender um, describes that kind of psychological, social, cultural aspect of expectations for what it means to be male or female. The problem is, uh, and, and I, I hope people could recognize that those distinctions can be helpful. Like, you know, I know a lot of, there's a lot of males, biological males who don't feel particularly, particularly masculine, and they may do things or be interested in things that don't come off as culturally kind of masculine, but they're still male, hundred percent male. So I think making those distinctions can be helpful. The problem is, um, 
in spite of everything I said, some people will still use these terms interchangeably. And then they'll turn around and say sex and gender are different, but then they will use sex and gender to refer to the same thing. So, you know, if you are confused about the difficulty of understanding what it means to be trans, um, the sex gender distinction is equally confusing. Um, the most important thing is if you're in a conversation with somebody um, and these terms come up, uh, it's important to just ask for clarity. Like, what do you mean by the term gender? I, I never get more than five minutes into a conversation with somebody about this topic before I say, what do you mean by, when you say gender, what does that mean? Or if you say your gender identity is non-binary, what do you mean by gender? What do you mean by identity? And what do you mean by non-binary? Because we're not going to get anywhere in a conversation until I understand what you mean by these terms. So it's really important just to ask for people to clarify their definition and, and in a sense, um, help them to use that term consistently because again, the term gender is often used with wild inconsistency in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's helpful. Now, Preston, why is the conversation around trans identities uh, so important to the church right now? Well, I mean, there are several reasons. Um, for one, in, in no particular order, um, I mean, the trans conversation is, has become one of the main, uh, the latest kind of hot topic in, in culture right now in society. And so all of us are being forced to think through, you know, this conversation. What do we think about? Uh, trans identified people in uh, in athletics and what about bathrooms and what about po different policies and the equality act is a big one what about nonprofits that don't sign off on certain um views of of gender identity that would be one we're just kind of forced to think about it we're living in in a those of us who are thinking or we're living especially in a western society also there's been a massive increase among teenagers uh identifying as either transgender, non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer, demigirl, and there's many, many other gender identities. And so um, if we're going to, well, no, not if, but since as responsible leaders, we need to help disciple our next generation well, there's a growing number who are either embracing an alternative or a minority gender identity, um, or they definitely have friends that are. So um, if, if you went to a youth group and, you know, <laughs> As for a show of hands, how, how many here either identify as, you know, an alternative gender identity or know somebody who is, you can get a lot of hands that go up. Uh, in California, just in California, people, there's a survey, survey done two years ago, so it's going to be probably a higher percentage now, but 20 27% of Californian youth um, identified as either gender nonconforming or trans or kind of something outside of their biological sex. So one and a quarter. And that percentage isn't going to change too much, whether you're inside or outside the church. So, um, yeah, we, we can't we can't pretend like this is such a fringe issue that it's not right. worth our our uh, interests to to engage in. But even if it was a minority experience, I mean, didn't Jesus leave the ninety nine to pursue the one if our congregation only had a few trans people there, then all the more reason to leave the 99 to make sure we are embodying the truth and love of Jesus toward toward the one. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And I think that really plays into, as ministry leaders, as pastors, us really paying attention to, you know, the mission, you know, what God mm -hmm. has called us to do and who he has called us to be and, and have... Um, you know, kind of a missionary's heart about that. And if we're right. going to have that kind of a posture, then we're going to take the time to um, get to know 
stories, get to know people, and have a better, more you know, fuller understanding of these types of issues if, we're, if we really want to minister. Preston, if someone is experiencing this incongruence between their biological sex and their gender, are there places that we can turn in our understanding of God in Scripture that can help provide some guidance? Man, that's, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there are places in Scripture we can turn to. Um, so we, we obviously, we should go to uh, special revelation, right, the, the Word of God for direction. I also think in this conversation, there is a lot of uh, a truth in general revelation. You know, if we, if we study, you know, certain sciences, I think we can, that can help come alongside our biblical truth to help minister to people. Um, biblically, beginning in Genesis 127, especially um, where it says God created humanity in his own image male and female, he created them. I mean, that's, that's a fascinating, very relevant statement that somehow our biological sex, male and female is, is, is intertwined with the reality that we bear God's image. We don't just bear God's image as humans. We don't just bear God's image as embodied humans, humans, but we, we bear God's image as sexed embodied humans. That's Genesis 127. And you see that perspective all throughout scripture, this kind of like really high view of the body and of the sexed body. Uh, Paul draws on this in, in Corinthians and there's many other passages that, that draw on this scriptural theme. So all that to say, I, I don't think, well, let me say it positively. I, it does seem to me that biblically that our biological sex is an important part of human identity. Um, so if somebody experiences an incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of who they are, that's, that's a uh, gender identity is, is defined as one's internal sense of who you are. If there's an incongruence between the two, it would seem that there's at least a good scriptural case to be made that the, the bio, your biological sex is a more accurate view of who you are. And, and, um, Therefore, we need to try to align your internal sense with your biological sex. Um, now, uh, the Bible does not give us, you know, specific guidance on things like gender dysphoria and what, what causes it and how to alleviate it. Like these are very complicated uh, questions that the the best psychologists in the world um, are still wrestling with. Um, and I think we can draw on on some of that. I also think that as Christians, we should we should be nervous about mainstream views on the topic. And this is, this took me a lot of research and I talk about it a lot in my book, but man, digging into a lot of the scientific discussion, it's, it's a hot mess. Like <laughs> um, it, it's, there's so much ideological pressure on different studies and there's so much just ideology like given into it that we need to be really careful kind of quoting this study or that study in the latest, you know, mainstream media outlet. We need, we need to, um, either, you know, well, we need to do some, some hard work and really think critically through this. Um, the one thing that the Bible does say with somebody, with anybody, whether they have gender dysphoria, the trans or whatever, is that we all are in desperate need of community, of belonging, of being part of something bigger than ourselves, of, of belonging to a community that is gracious and, and, and listens and loves and cares for us and, and challenges us when we need to be challenged and loves us when we need to be loved. And, and um, if all we do is deconstruct the latest, you know, 
equality act being pushed or the, you know, uh, bill regarding trans athletes, like there's a place to look at those issues, but man, we need to create communities of love and repentance and care, especially for people like many trans people who have not at all experienced that from, from the church. Yeah, yeah, that that's excellent, Preston. And and you mentioned that there are a lot of different um, kind of pressures in different ways that are kind of pushing in on how we examine um, different behaviors and you know how people are identifying and those types of things. When we look to scripture, would you say that scripture supports cross-sex behavior? I want to say, I want to immediately say no, but my big I'm gonna I'm gonna need another question. Like, what do you mean by cross sex behavior? I would say scripture um, does not support cross sex um, presentation or identities. Uh, we see this in the classic uh, cross dressing prohibition in Deuteronomy twenty two five. We see um, you know a man shall not dress. Um, uh, I forget the exact word, a man shall not put on the clothes of a woman or a woman or a man's clothing or whatever. And in the ancient world, clothing was very black and white, like gendered, like men wore certain kinds of things and women wore certain kinds of things. In our culture today, and at least in the West, there's a lot of crossover, you know, like can women wear blue jeans, you know, can, can men wear a silk shirt, <laughs> you know, like, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity and, and really kind of cultural context for things like clothing and, that, and that's where some of these when, when people say cross-sex behavior it's like what exactly do you mean can a woman cut her hair short can a woman play sports can a man write poetry and cry during emotional movies you know we have all these kind of assumptions about about what the other set how the other sex should or shouldn't behave so we need to be very clear that we're not taking cultural moral assumptions and projecting that on the bible we need to make sure we we look at what the Bible says and the Bible doesn't give us a lot of kind of um, moral mandates that are specific for one sex and not the other. Well, you know, Titus two, Titus two says that women should teach younger women to be kind and gentle hearted and, and pure and sober minded. Well, guess what? All those are virtues that apply to men elsewhere too. So um, there's very few, if any, some people would say there's none, I, but let me just be conservative here that there's very few commands that might be given to women and not men or men, not women. We are all called to be godly, to be humble, to turn to the other cheek, to love neighbor, enemy alike, um, to be strong and courageous. Like these are commands given to whole congregations, male and female. Um, but no, so understanding a lot of the kind of complexity with what we even think of when we think of cross-sex behavior, I, I don't think the Bible uh, would want his disciples to uh, identify as and try to convince other people that you are um, the opposite sex. And I think that's kind of the heart behind the cross-dressing prohibition. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and that's kind of what I was um, what I was curious about, you know, in your studies and in, in the work that you do um, in regard to cross-sex behavior, not so much as uh, gender stereotypes, right. but, you know, presenting as, as another yeah. sex. So, but since we kind of touched on gender stereotypes a bit, what <laughs> is the impact of gender stereotypes on people? And how does scripture relate to those, those types of stereotypes? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, most of our stereotypes about what it means to be a man or be a woman, to be masculine or feminine, most of these come from culture, not the Bible. Like, you know, you, you got somebody like King David, you know, who seems to be the kind of the epitome of a masculine man. He killed Goliath and was a great warrior. But, you know, David also 
played a harp and he wrote poetry and cried more than probably any other figure in the Bible and was just wore his emotions on his sleeve in the 73 Psalms that he wrote. You read the Psalms and you're like, dude, this guy was just an emotional mess in some <laughs> cases, you know. Um, when his best friend Jonathan died, he said, your love to me was better than the love of women. Now, I would challenge any manly man out there to turn to your best friend and say, your love to me is better than the love that I have for women. Like, that's a not your stereotypical masculine thing to say. And most warriors in the Bible are men. Um, some are women like Deborah and Yael and Judges 4 and 5. And so you you do have kind of typical ways in which males and females will typically act. But those aren't absolutes. There's always exceptions to the norm. There's always people that don't fit that kind of general pattern. And the Bible doesn't say that that's wrong. Um, I don't think Deborah was in sin because she was, you know, leading Israel in battle um, in, in Judges 4. I don't think Jesus was in sin, obviously, because he wept over Jerusalem and he cried. And, you know, um, so we, we just need to make sure as, as a church, we don't uh, morally mandate certain stereotypes that probably aren't really in, like, mandated by the Bible. Um, and, and I think the church does tend to do this, I would say implicitly, but I talked to a lot of people that that you know, men and women who aren't trans, who don't have gender dysphoria, who may not like to go to church men's and women's retreats, you know, because there might be a female who's not particularly feminine. And they're like, I'm just not really into arts and crafts. Like, I'd rather go play ultimate frisbee and eat barbecue, but that's <laughs> will never happen at a women's retreat. Or men who are like, I'm terrible at sports and I just feel like. I'm less of a man whenever I go to a men's retreat, you know, because everything's all about sports and eating raw meat or whatever. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think, again, we, we need to allow people to live out their male or female identity in, in ways that resonate with the flexibility in, in scripture and not morally mandate gender stereotypes that come from culture, not the Bible. Now, again, I want to come full circle to say, I, but I do think that God wants us to embrace and celebrate our sexual, our sex identity as either male or or female. Yeah, that's that, that's good. Now, Preston, what do you say to the argument that you know we have learned so much more about the human body, about sociology, sexuality, gender, you know, the list goes on, than was known by people in biblical times. Um, yeah. Therefore, scripture really cannot speak to our modern understandings of, of things like trans identities. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, certainly there are specific questions that we don't have like a verse or two to directly use. Things like what would alleviate gender dysphoria? You know, there's no verse in Leviticus that I can go to to say, well, just follow this and your gender dysphoria will go away. So if we're looking for that kind of scriptural guidance, um, there's going to be more silence than explicit statements. But the Bible does give us a, 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 a really, I would say, fairly clear um, and robust view of what it means to be an embodied human, that the body is good, that our biological sex is part of human identity, that we're not that we don't need to conform to gender stereotypes, all the stuff we've been talking about, like that, that comes from the Bible. That, that's a beautiful thing. With the trans conversation, this is one of the, well, you know, in, in the past, the Bible and science sometimes haven't had the best relationship. You know, there's been some complexity there, right, to say the least. Um, when it comes to the trans conversation, 
the sci- science and the Bible are actually friends, not foes here. Um, uh, some of the s- claims you see being made today are not just unbiblical. They're just flat out bad science. Um, uh, for instance, I mean, if, um, if somebody, if somebody is clearly male, not female, and they identify as female, um, and somebody says, well, we need to pursue medical intervention, hormones and surgery to align your internal sense of self with your body, that's really never been done before in, in, in medical practice where we would take a perfectly healthy body and a mind that is not resonating with the body. And we would try to correct something that doesn't need to be corrected. The body to align with the mind rather than even asking a question, maybe it's the mind that is off. Like never before in medical history that I'm aware of, would we correct something that doesn't need to be corrected? There's no, there's no evidence that this thing is wrong. This, these body parts or, you know, hormone levels or whatever. So that to me, that's just not leaving aside the ethics of, for instance, transitioning that, that just, just seems to be really poor medical uh, practice. Um, So, yeah. So if if somebody says, well, we've, we have, we know much more about science and that therefore the Bible doesn't, you know, we would need to leave that aside. I would say it's because we know a lot more about science that the Bible is, resonates with science that humans are sexually dimorphic male and female that um, we do live in a fallen world where things we have desires and we suffer from certain conditions that aren't part of god's original design like the whole science conversation with the trans in the trans world i mean it it, again it's very congruent with what the what the bible says so um and uh, you know there is an assumption that I mean, either you believe in biblical authority or you don't. I mean, I guess it is a presupposition. I would say I can justify it, but it is a presupposition that I am assuming that the Bible does carry a level of authority. So if it says that male and female, he created us in his image, and somebody says, I don't think that's authoritative. I think that's old. I think that was good for the ancient world, but not for today. We're dealing with two very different assumptions about scriptural authority, Um so, yeah, I, I, but again, assuming that the Bible is authoritative, I think that it doesn't actually conflict with science when it comes to the trans conversation. Yeah, that's good. So, um, a, a little more, um, touching on some counterpoints, a little bit of pushback that people might make. Yeah. Some people, maybe even some who are listening in today, um, would say that scripture supports gender affirmation. You know, in other words, that one's gender identity can overrule their biological sex. And Mm -hmm. they reference passages like Jesus' acceptance of the eunuch in Matthew or Paul's letter to the Galatians declaring neither male nor female, other passages as really supporting gender affirmation. What are your thoughts on on those claims? Yeah. Yeah, I've got lots of thoughts. Uh, (laughs) I I have a whole uh, chapter um, uh, addressing all the biblical kind of um, uh, gender-affirming views that go to the scriptures to support their view. And then several chapters addressing some of the scientific uh, pushbacks. Um, so yeah, the, these are, um, these are arguments that Christians need, need to wrestle with. What do we do with the eunuch? Um, that, that one's often referenced in Matthew 19 verse 12. Jesus says, you know, some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs and some choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Almost everybody says that third category of somebody choosing to be a eunuch is probably more metaphorical. Somebody making some commitment to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Um, 
but what do we do with the born and, and the made eunuch, somebody who's made a, a eunuch by other men, um, typically as somebody who's been castrated um, for various reasons, wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. But what do we do with the born eunuch, somebody that was born a eunuch? I would say that that category is is much more in line with what we would call an intersex condition. Somebody that has is born with some atypical feature in their sexual anatomy and or their chromosomes. Now, um, intersex is categorically different than than transgender. Uh, transgender is somebody who is clearly male or female, but their internal sense of self is different than that biological reality. Intersex is where there might be some ambiguity in the very biological reality itself. Um, so there's no, there's just, there's no, I mean, <laughs> this might sound too sweeping, but I, I think it's justifiable that there's no, there's no evidence that, that the eunuch is representing somebody with some kind of alternative gender identity. The very idea of gender identity being your internal sense of who you are, that, that is a very kind of modern way of framing it. We don't know we don't know the internal sense of these eunuchs. Like we, what we do know is if they're a born eunuch, they probably had some kind of um, atypical feature in their sexual anatomy, or maybe they were just infertile. What we do know is they were all males. Eunuchs were typically male. Um, and um, what was their internal sense of self? You don't know. And I don't know. And nobody knows what the internal sense of self is. So um, I think a eunuch is really a misapplication of, you know, if we just say because of the eunuch, therefore, one's gender identity overrules their biological sex if there's incongruence. I think that therefore is a logical leap that just can't be justified. Genesis 3.28, Paul says, you know, in the kingdom of God, there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, nor nor male nor female. Um, I think we have to understand that neither male nor female in its really specific context. When Paul says neither are there Jew nor Gentile, he's not he's not, he's not uh, saying there's no such thing as an actual Jew or a Gentile. Those are just realities that are just there. He's saying in the kingdom of God, those social, in this case, ethnic categories did not give somebody a superior status in the kingdom of God, neither slave nor free. Same thing. 20% of the Roman world were slaves. Like clearly Paul's aware of that. He's not saying there's no such thing as slaves. He's saying it, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, you're both equal in God's kingdom. So same thing with male and female. I don't think Paul's denying the fact that there is such a thing as male and female. He relies on that reality in first Corinthians 11. That's also, I mean, in many other passages, he assumes the reality of male and female. What he's saying again in that context is that in God's kingdom, um, uh, whether you're a male or female, you have equal status before God in a society where males were typically assumed to be much higher on the social ladder. So yeah, that, I th again, I think th these arguments just aren't, I don't think they have a lot of credibility to them when you really look at the, when you look at it in context. Yeah. It's, it's important to actually, um, like you said, look at those passages in context. And as you've also alluded to that we need to be prepared um, as those who are, you know, seeking to honor God with our lives, following Christ, especially if we're in, in ministry leadership in some capacity, because we can get, you know, caught <laughs> um, with, with some of those arguments, perhaps. Or And if, if we're not mm -hmm. taking the time to understand the context of those, those um, passages, then we may have trouble, you know, kind of sharing, explaining, guiding, leading people. Um, so just taking the time to to invest in some of this 
uh, and learning yeah. more about this is is so helpful. So Preston, if if you had a pastor from a typical church um, you take you out to coffee and say, okay, Preston, what are the next steps for me um, that, that I can take so our church can better address and minister to those who are questioning their gender? Uh, what would you recommend? I would, I would highly recommend pastors um, with their fellow leaders um, in as much as it's possible. I mean, churches are you know, 100 to 10,000 and more, it might, you know, this might look different depending on the size of the church, but for a pastor with a group of leaders to, first of all, work hard at educating yourself on the topic. There's so much confusion out there. There's, there's not a ton of really solid resources, I would say, but, you know, go through a few books, uh, talk to a few trans people, um, watch some videos and stuff. Um, to educate yourself uh, as a leadership team. Um, and then I would, well, once you feel fairly well equipped um, with humility um, and courage, I would say it would be good in 2021. <laughs> um, it would be good to help disciple your people in this conversation. Um, I would, uh, with, with my whole approach to the LGBTQ conversation as a whole, we, we cannot preach truth at the expense of grace. We cannot preach grace at the expense of truth. We need to make sure we are instilling in our people a compassionate, gracious posture, uh, a caring posture, a loving posture, a listening posture. We cannot have an arrogant tone. Um, so we need to make sure we instill that in our congregation. We also um, need to um, make sure we are following God's word and being bold with what God says about how he has designed humanity. And that's not always easy. I've got a good friend of mine who's a pastor of a mega church in, in, in um, well, I'll just say in Tennessee. And uh, he very much resonates with this perspective, you know, and he's, he's reaching out to gay and lesbian people. And um, he met a lesbian couple that was coming to church one Sunday. And he happened to be a church a Sunday when he was addressing these issues. And, um, he knew they were going to be there and he happened to be talking about what the Bible says about same sex relationships. And he wanted to make sure he would, he wasn't going to preach God's truth in such a way that would elicit some kind of like applause from the congregation or thank you for saying that, or we need to stand for truth because even that kind of almost like a warrior posture that sometimes people aren't doing it really intentionally necessarily, but he knew that, in, he needed to frame it in such a way that somebody's celebration of the truth, which is a good thing, wouldn't be taken as ostracizing the other person. So mm -hmm. however we navigate this, we need to make sure we're, we're not just preaching to the choir, stoking the fires of outrage. We need to be doing both, uh, stoking the fires for people's passion for truth while they are also being just as passionate for reaching um, people who have been marginalized by, by the church. So making sure that you're keeping both of those in focus. So educate yourself, your fellow leaders, take time, tons of prayer. Um, and then I, I take steps to help to, to disciple your congregation in what has become some of the most important ethical questions facing the church today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pressing the, the, the real challenge there is that balance um, between yeah. truth and grace because, you know, for those of us in ministry, you know, for the most part, um, our, our motives are, are hopefully that we feel called into ministry to, to glorify God and to reach people who are far from him and help disciple people, make disciples. That's the call, right? And so that balance between, you know, truth and holding the truth in front of people, but also in, you know, 
in a way that demonstrates great compassion and grace and love and care and concern. That's that's the biggest yeah. challenge I think that we face. Yeah, I I mean that's I I hate promoting my book, whatever, and that's not the goal. But like my book and body, like that, it it went through ten ten drafts and wow. 15, 20 different readers before I even went to my editor who shredded it and everything because <laughs> I was trying to be so careful to embody a compassionate tone while addressing things that I think are just flat out wrong, either biblically or scientifically. And it just took me, it took a lot of time and effort to try to do that. And again, I'm, I, I, I'll let my audience decide whether I, I did that well, but uh, I, in a sense, I, I, I wanted that, that approach to be a model for other leaders who are trying, trying to do that. You know, here's one way in which you can do that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I, in Preston, and you didn't know I was going to say this, but I, I read the whole book. I, I got the book a couple of weeks ago and read it cool. and uh, really enjoyed it and felt that you struck that balance. Um, it was cool. very encouraging for me um, as a ministry leader to read read that um, because I think resources like Embodied, like that book, um, are incredibly important right now as we're kind of navigating a lot of these vital conversations and as we're really seeking to be um, the hand and feet uh, of Christ in our communities. So, Preston, how can our listeners um, learn more about your work, about about the book and your other books, your ministry, and how can they connect with you? Yeah, so our, uh, the ministry that I run is called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and our whole mission in life is, is to help equip Christian leaders to address questions of faith, sexuality, and gender with uh, theological faithfulness and courageous love. So that's centerforfaith.com. Centerforfaith.com has loads of resources you can check out there. I also have a personal website, prestonsprinkle.com, um, where I, I don't do a lot of activity there, but I've got loads of blogs and uh, my podcast is synced with uh, um, my website. So my podcast is Theology in the Raw. Um, and I would say about 20 or 30% of my conversations are with people in the LGBTQ SSA um, kind of uh, um, uh, sphere. So a lot of sexuality and gender conversations along with everything else from politics to, <laughs> to race, to violence, to everything. So we talk about, we talk about it all. Excellent. And for our listeners, we'll have links to all those places where you can connect with Preston and his work and his ministry um, in the show notes for this episode. So Preston, again, I just want to thank you for uh, making the time to be with us today, but also thank you for all of the um, all of the work and uh, the heart that you're putting into um, this ministry, into these conversations, into elevating these conversations in a way that, that really seeks to, as you said, um, courageously love people um, just as Christ loves us. So thank you for being with us yeah. today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. Be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.